This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 16th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. How much should it cost to build a house? It seems pretty clear that it should be less than it is, but after you add up state and local restrictions, including zoning and other land use restrictions, and the trade policies of presidents that add to the price of a home, well, we are where we are. Newly minted Cato senior fellow Scott Lincecum comments. I just uh, recorded a chat with Michael Tanner of the Cato Institute. And it's interesting that uh, in San Diego, at least, uh, zoning and density and general housing policy is like a really huge, hot issue in this mayor's race. Uh, And to hear Michael Tanner tell it, that's going to continue to be the case in metropolitan areas. And it's going to be a growing uh, front and center issue for local and state elections. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this is driven by housing prices, housing availability. Uh, why is that such a big deal right now? Right. So so I think there's, um, there, well, there's two, two things going on. Um, on the one hand, you have housing prices. Um, those, particularly in popular metropolitan areas, are going to really exceed costs, so the cost to build a house or an apartment complex, construction costs, um, a lot. And the that that delta, that difference between the actual price you pay and the actual price to build, um, is is going to reflect uh, a lot of market factors. But the big one, and the one that is being debated vigorously all over the country, is land use regulation. And what do we mean when we say land use regulation? Well, the most obvious and co- most common example is zoning, right? So a municipality says you can only build single family homes um, in this zone, um, or you can only build large or businesses, you know, skyscrapers. So Clearly, zoning can have a really significant impact on the amount of housing you can build in a municipality. And look, this is pretty basic supply and demand stuff, right? You have a bunch of people that want to live in a really awesome metropolitan area like San Diego or New York City or wherever. Um, And yet the zoning is such that you can't actually build enough housing to meet that demand. Now, We think of zoning as the only or the main one, but the fact is that there are tons of other land use regulations that um, need to be discussed, debated, and are are being so. Um, And those are things like um, uh, use regulation, like I mentioned, but also density regulation, how high a building can be, um, how many units it can hold in multifamily housing. there's also regulations on design. Um, you know, does it have to fit a certain look? Here in North Carolina, there's a town right next door called Cary, and there are very strict design rules for um, commercial and uh, multifamily housing. Um, and then all sorts of other things related to historic preservation or the simply the process of getting permits, um, where community 
boards have a say in whether uh, commercial developers can get a, a, a housing permit and then actually start building. And then even things related to quality. So all of these land use regulations together can cause the price of a home um, to far exceed the actual cost to build that home. And again, when you have these places um, with very strict land use regulations, what the economic studies show is that those land use regulations, so in, in, for in a place like San Francisco, for example, um, those land use regulations have a really dramatic effect on prices. And so why do we care? Well, we care for, for a couple reasons. Um, first is that these are these places that are, are have these housing issues tend to be the places that have uh, the best jobs, best quality of life, um, and so forth. So you have people who want to move to these areas to to get a better job or whatever, and they can't. So that kind of restricts mobility. Um, but the other issues, and and that and we want that, right? We want to have a dynamic national economy where people can move relatively freely from say you know places that are struggling to places that are thriving um, and and again going back to some of these economic studies they showed that this would actually not only benefit those people who are moving but have a really massive impact on uh, national uh, gross domestic products so the US economy overall so not only improving those lives but improving improving everybody's but then there's also just a simple uh, equity and cronyism aspect of this the fact is that you have uh, uh, people you know what they call nimbys in these areas that have kind of captured the regulatory process and in so doing they've really um, they they've reaped uh, a lot of rents from the government in terms of uh, housing wealth, quality of life, and that they've denied to others that are trying to live in these areas. Um, there's also studies that show that these areas tend to have better schools in terms of public schooling. So you can see, you know, this is a, a really exclusionary uh, government-enforced system that that, in, it, that benefits a very small few at the expense of uh, the many. So leaving aside all of the local and state interests that uh, drive the costs of housing and housing construction specifically higher, in 2019, the White House created a council on, on eliminating barriers to affordable housing development. Um, and at the same time, the president, uh, Donald Trump, has pursued a trade policy that has been heavy on tariffs. Uh, heavy on trade restrictions and uh, heavy on really belligerence to a lot of people uh, from whom Americans buy lots of stuff. So uh, walk walk us through specifically what has this uh, what exists on the books uh, it, it, with respect to trade that also contributes to making housing less yeah. affordable. Yeah, and and that I think that's a. Uh... A good segue here. So I talked uh, uh, previously about land use regulation, you know, increasing pricing above costs. But the fact is that in a lot of places in the country, housing prices generally tend to track construction costs. So whatever it costs to build, that's generally going to dictate how much you're going to pay. So in a lot of places outside of, say, San Francisco, Manhattan, and so forth, um, construction costs matter a ton. And as you mentioned, um, 
there are federal policies that that can really increase construction costs quite significantly. So essentially creating a federal tax on, on housing. And trade policy, of course, is a great example. And it's a great example because um, I think quite unintentionally, over the last decade or so, the United States has slowly but surely imposed all sorts of restrictions on imported building supplies. Almost, it when you look at it, everything you need to build a house. Um, washing machines, uh, solar panels, if you're into that, uh, appliances and building materials from China, shelving units, iron and steel pipe, concrete, uh, sinks, plywood, cement, hot, uh, softwood lumber, Quartz countertops, I could go on and on and on. And then, of course, broader restrictions on steel, including things like rebar and girders and the rest, uh, and aluminum products. Again, all of these things, uh, essentially almost everything you need to build a house from the foundation to the roof um, is subject to some sort of duty um, imposed over the last decade or so. And I think it's important to note that really we're not talking about simply Trump administration policies. You know, certainly Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs that were imposed a couple of years ago, the tariffs on Chinese imports, those those matter. But I a mean, lot his, his these, first big fight over uh, trade as president was with Carrier. Yeah, right. Right. And and in fact, Carrier is a great example because Carrier complained uh, vociferously um, or Carrier workers complained vociferously about their jobs being offshored. And then just about a year later, Carrier was complaining because Donald Trump had slapped tariffs on the things that Carrier in the United States needed to make air conditioners. So it, there really is... Um, if you care about housing, as the administration, you know, in this task force seems to care about, um, then these restrictions are nonsensical. Um, and again, just to reiterate, um, this is a bipartisan thing. Um, a lot of these restrictions have been in place. For example, Canadian softwood lumber has been an issue for, for decades. Um, but a lot of these measures are implemented pursuant to our trade remedies laws, um, anti-dumping and countervailing duties laws that really enjoy a lot of bipartisan support. Um, the problem is that there is no way under these laws for the government to even consider these broader consumer interests, so you know, house, housing consumers, construction companies, or nas the national interest, uh, as I mentioned, um, you know, lowering restrictions on on housing or lowering housing costs could have really dramatic benefits for the U.S. economy as a whole. They can't even consider that. So when they're imposing massive new taxes on softwood lumber or steel or kitchen racks or whatever, um, the the agencies that administer these laws are barred from even considering them. And so the result is now we have um, housing taxes all over the place that are really difficult to remove once in place. So going forward, uh, I've spoken with Simon Lester about this. Um, do you expect anything to be different with regard to housing policy in 2021 and why? Um, well, I, I think that there's some good news and there's some bad news. Um, I, there seems to be um, on the good news side, a real bipartisan consensus about the need to 
uh, reform land use regulations. So, you know, I talked about earlier all of these crazy zoning rules and so forth. There really seems to be a bipartisan effort there. Um, the problem, of course, is that these are state and local policies mainly. So there's just so much the feds can do um, to improve that. But I do think there's there's some hope there. Um, I'd also be remiss not to add that, look, COVID has really upended a lot of the standard assumptions we had six months ago about uh, the need to massively increase housing in really dense metro areas. You know, it's not as clear right at this moment that we, um, that you're going to have, again, just a bunch of millennials and Zoomers dying to live in Manhattan. Um, and more importantly, you're going to have a bunch of major corporations that are that are, are desperate to move there. But that said, there does appear to be um, a bipartisan consensus to, to improve land use regulation. Unfortunately, there also appears to be a bipartisan consensus to continue restricting imports of everything we need to actually build a house. And, and I don't see much hope um, for, for reform in that area. In fact, look, if you look at Joe Biden's economic uh, plans that he's just released over the last few days, they are heavy on economic nationalism. They are heavy on Buy American rules. Um, and, you know, the campaign, at least... Um, you know, there's there's always a difference between a campaign and administration. But at the campaign, at least, they seem to really be leaning into economic nationalism. So I have really no hope that you're going to see the Biden campaign um, really come out forcefully against all of these uh, import taxes on on building materials and construction costs. Um, you know, again, the hope though is that they at least uh, try to help with uh, housing regulation. Uh, a lot of cities and states have made it very expensive and very difficult to build homes. And uh, does that make it easier for people like uh, Donald Trump and members of Congress to pursue protectionist trade policies with respect specifically to materials that allow people to build houses more cheaply? Yeah, I, that's a great point, and I think I think. You're you're right, and in fact, uh, this is something I'm I'm going to be researching at Cato in the in the near future, and that is that um, look, housing restrictions, state and local land use regulations, really all of these different things we've done over the last twenty and thirty years to dramatically inflate the cost of housing, particularly in attractive areas and, and thriving cities, um, acts as really a barrier to mobility. And it, it can essentially uh, prevent people from moving to these uh, thriving areas. Well, these people who are trying to move to these thriving areas are often those that have had their lives disrupted through either import competition or automation or you name it. And they're living in these kind of, you know, uh, quintessential or uh, really cliche Rust Belt towns or uh, dying rural areas and the rest. And so these folks are looking for a solution um, in part because you know they're blocked from moving to these uh, these better places, uh, and again blocked because of in part due to high housing costs. So of course that leaves a a really wide opening 
for demagoguery uh, in the form of protectionist rhetoric and the promises to save these people from uh, their situation. And that's, of course, just a perfect opening uh, for Trump. And, and for other populists, I should say, it's not just Trump. This type of rhetoric has been around really for decades. Um, Trump just nationalized it. So uh, there was this guy who came on the Cato Daily podcast a while back saying, look, Democrats' support for free trade has never been higher. I forget yeah. who he was. but um, And uh, part of that is probably just driven by, well, Trump's against it. Well, I'm for it. Right. Um, but do you expect some of that to uh, stick? That is, uh, you know, there, if I understand you correctly about the Biden campaign, it doesn't seem like his campaign is appreciative of right. the fact that Democrats are so pro openness with respect to trade right now. Um, do you expect any of that to stick? That is, are Democrats going to be the party of free trade? Yeah, I I don't think Democrats are going to be the party of free trade. Um, however, uh, at the same time, I, I don't think you can put a ton of stock in what the Biden campaign is saying right now, simply because, um, look, this they have an election to win. And there are a lot of uh, rather cynical, but uh, potentially correct and potent uh, ways they can... Um, neuter Donald Trump in some of these areas that they think they need to win, uh, particularly in the industrial Midwest. So they're going to lean into this type of economic nationalism. And, and again, I say cynical because the fact is, like you said, most people, Democrat and Republican alike, support open trade. They tend to oppose protectionism as well, particularly given the recent failures of that protectionism. But at the same time, if you look at the polls, they do show overwhelming support for trade and free trade and, and general opposition to tariffs, particularly um, given all of the recent uh, tariff and, and trade war debacles we've had. That said, those very same polls, if you look closely, will also show pretty extreme disinterest and uh, among most American voters except there is a little bit of intensity, um, say 5% of the electorate, that is uh, protectionist, adamantly so, and in fact votes on that issue. Um, there's a slightly smaller uh, uh, percentage that's pro-trade uh, and votes on that issue. So if you, again, are a campaign operative looking to score votes in the industrial Midwest, um, it actually makes sense from, again, a very just cynical, basic political perspective to play into the protectionism because you might gain more votes than you're going to lose and that you're really going to have the vast majority of American voters aren't going to care at all. And you actually see this uh, a good bit because you you read, for example, uh, the Washington Post editors the other day came out strongly against uh, Biden's economic nationalism, but still praised him overall. And I think that's where most people uh, are going, what they're going to do, either for or against Biden, his trade policy is going to have uh, no sway. So again, they can, they can be just um, kind of trying to harvest those few votes, um, those few voters uh, for which protectionism matters. Scott Lincecum is a brand new senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.